Happiness is an inside job. At Happy Healthy You, Connie Bowman helps us find our way with inspiring conversations and healthy ideas for living a whole life in mind, body, and spirit. Happy Healthy You. And now, here's Connie. Hi, everybody. I'm Connie Bowman with Happy Healthy You, the weekly podcast about living a whole life in mind, body, and spirit. And I just realized as I go to record this podcast that I have my new watch on, and it's super cute. It's it's a Timex. It's got a huge face, and it lights up so my uh, aging eyes can see it. And when it's dark, I can light it up. But the one thing about this watch, as cute as it is, it makes a lot of noise. I'm going to put it up next to the mic and see if you can hear it. So I guess I'm going to take my cute watch off for this podcast, which is going to be an amazing one. So we've all heard the adage that whatever doesn't kill you might make you stronger. Well, that might not be true. Hi, everybody. I'm Connie Bowman from Happy Healthy You, the podcast. And on this podcast, we talk about body, mind, and spirit and how being in balance can lead to a happier and healthier life. And today I'm talking to Donna Jackson Nakazawa, and she's the author of a new book called Childhood Disrupted, How Your Biography Becomes Your Biology and How You Can Heal. And this is a new and groundbreaking book about research that's recently come out that reveals that emotional stress and anxiety suffered in childhood affects physical health in adulthood. Yet so many people just don't know about this important connection. So I'm so excited to talk to Donna. She says that adversities that we suffer as children can shape our biology in ways that predetermine our physical health, our longevity, and our overall well-being. Scientists can now trace on a biochemical level how physical and verbal abuse, neglect, divorce, death in the family, being bullied or hazed, growing up with quarreling parents or a hypercritical alcoholic, or a mentally ill parent can leave permanent physical fingerprints on our brains. Difficult childhoods can lead to all kinds of health problems in later life. And Donna Jackson Nakazawa, I'll give her a little bio, she's an award-winning science journalist, a public speaker, and she's also the author of The Last Best Cure. I love that book. In this book, she talked about her year-long journey journey to health. And her book, Childhood Disrupted, was actually born from her own search to better understand the role that her own childhood adversity and how it played out in her chronic health issues that she faced as an adult. She also is the author of The Autoimmune Epidemic, an investigation into reasons behind today's rising rate of autoimmune diseases are occurring. She lectures nationwide and has appeared on the Today Show, NPR, and ABC News. Her work has been featured on the cover of Parade in Time Magazine, USA Today, Weekend, Parenting, and Psychology Today, and she's also a regular contributor to More, to More Magazine, which we love, and her research has been covered by the Washington Post, Glamour, Ladies Home Journal, and AARP, the magazine, and she blogs regularly for Psychology Today. Donna, gosh, you're a busy woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Connie. Thanks. It's good to take some time and have a chat with you, so thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about this subject, and I should say the most important connection is that we share an acupuncturist so shout out to Janet don't we love Janet oh Janet Elfman she's amazing <laughs> and um, really transformative and gosh if she lived a little closer I would be there all the time I, know. I just leave her office feeling like I'm on cloud nine I wish she could bottle it 
Me too. And that's a great segue. So let's start with your book, which I read. It was awesome. The Last Best Cure. And in it, you talked about your journey to wellness after suffering with so many severe autoimmune disorders. And that journey really led you to write Childhood Disrupted, as I said. Can you talk about that period in your life when you were suffering and how you how you brought yourself through your healing process? Well, I certainly didn't do it alone. And I think that that's such an important thing for people to understand. But um, I guess it would be good to just kind of lay the groundwork for what led me to write Childhood Disrupted after writing The Last Best Cure. And to do that, ironically, I have to start with the book before The Last Best Mm -hmm. Cure. Um, And, you know, when I think about it, I've spent really a decade investigating that intersection between what we know about neuroscience immunology. And what I think of, Connie, as the deepest inner workings of the human heart. And I've been looking at that in an exploration of really how do we become ill and how can we experience extraordinary healing by marrying these three threads of research together. So it started for me really um, when I developed a range of autoimmune diseases as a young mom. I was struck by Guillain-Barre twice, which is an autoimmune neurological disorder that's similar to multiple sclerosis, but with a more sudden onset and a less certain outcome. Um, In my case, the first time I was paralyzed for a month, it took me about six months to get back uh, my life, so to speak. And the second time I was out of commission for six months, really bedridden, and I was raising young children during those years. It took me two years to kind of get my functionality back. And then I developed a side effect or a a complication of Guillain-Barre with bowparesis, thyroiditis. I now have a pacemaker and an autoimmune disorder brewing in my bone marrow. So in the autoimmune epidemic, because I had lost my father when I was quite young to a constellation of autoimmune diseases, and because they had kept me from being the parent and, um, and, and having the, you know, young working mother life that I had certainly set out for and envisioned for myself and my family, I wanted to look at those rising rates of autoimmune disease that we were seeing in every industrialized country around the world, especially among women. And so I wrote the autoimmune epidemic. And as I was writing that, I had reported on every way that we need to go green, all the 100,000 chemicals in our environment that aren't tested for their immunological, um, uh, our immunological response to them, and infections and um, genetics and the, you know, every theory that we can think of, including the hygiene hypothesis. I had investigated to look at how we become ill. But I had not had much time in that book to look at a toxin that we produce in our own brains. And by that, I mean the chemical stress cocktail that we marinate in when we're in a state of fight or flight. And the more I began to look into that research, which is called the science of psychoneuroimmunology, and that means the intersection between psychology or our mind state, our thoughts and feelings, our neuroscience, meaning the chemicals that we produce when we're in that kind of a mind state of fight or flight, and our physical well-being. The more that I explored that relationship, the more I became convinced from the science 
that there is a direct relationship between our state of mind and our cellular health. And in fact, we have thousands of studies supporting that now. So as much as I have investigated going green with our food and our cleaning agents and our environment and our chemicals, I really hadn't talked about going green in the mind mm. to help readers who are caught in a cycle of suffering, and inflammation and pain, to live healthier, better lives and to experience a, a greater layer of healing. Now I should say this is not to say that, um, that physical suffering is all in the mind. This is a biological reaction to state of mind, stress hormones, stress chemicals, create inflammation, inflammation creates disease. So I'll finish this out by saying that as I wrote The Last Best Cure and experienced a very deep and new layer of healing, not to say that I was you know, suddenly living without any, any kinds of um, restrictions, I, I probably will not ever run a marathon, um, I came across a body of research known as Adverse Childhood Experience Research, which looks at how this fight or flight state can actually be set early on in childhood. And when that is the case, the developing child goes through changes in the architecture of the brain and changes in the genes that oversee the stress response for life become set on a high setting so that we are constantly for the rest of our lives over responding to the world around us as if we are in a state of fight or flight, which means that as life goes on, poor kids who have experienced early emotional trauma, their genetic switches to respond by creating this toxic brew that creates inflammation and disease that is set on high. And so I really felt that I needed to devote an entire book to this. I, I, I like to talk about the things that we're not talking about as a society and yeah. try to start a groundbreaking conversation. Me so too, that's girl. a long answer. <laughs> no, me too, girl. I, I really love that you have explored this in such depth. And it's, it's really fascinating information. And you say in the book, we should have a little disclaimer before we go into this. You say in the book that these discoveries are not to make excuses for bad behavior or drug abuse or anything like that, but rather to create an awareness, which can also lead to healing. Can you maybe you can talk about that, how awareness actually works to help us and you can use yourself as an example or maybe somebody in the book? Well, so I think it'd be great to just as long as we're adding a few little disclaimers or caveats, I mm -hmm. just want to make a couple of more quickly. I set them out in the introduction of Childhood Disrupted because it occurred to me that it's very easy for this information to become misread on several counts. One, I want to say that I am not saying that adverse childhood experiences are the only factor that creates adult disease. All disease is multifactorial, and we know, as I know as a writer and researcher, we know genetics and exposures to toxins and infection and diet all play a role. But for those who have experienced adverse childhood experiences, and we'll go through what they are because it's part of the awareness piece that you just sure, talked about, Connie, sure. um, other disease-promoting factors become far more damaging. And I like to use a really simple metaphor, which is to consider the immune system as being something like a barrel. If 
you encounter too many chemicals or have a super poor diet or a lot of infections, viruses, chronic or acute stressors in adulthood, that barrel will slowly fill. And we all know that barrel analogy where you get that one last drop and the barrel spills over into disease. But having faced chronic, unpredictable, adverse childhood experiences is a lot like starting life with your barrel already half full. It is certainly not the only factor. There are many people who have had very difficult childhoods and do not have chronic health, mental or physical health disorders in adulthood. And there are people who have um, never had adversity in childhood who have illness in adulthood. So I just want to make sure that everyone understands that. Sure. And I and I would also just want to say that it's it's also very important to me that people understand that um, we're also not confusing adverse childhood experiences with the normative stress of growing up. So we're going to talk about what these different stressors are in a minute in a path to understanding how important awareness is. But it's really important that these aren't confused with normative stressors like, you know, kids who miss the bus or don't make the soccer team. There is a really important distinction, and that is that normative stress is something that we consider for children really helps them to develop resilience. They learn to fail and get up again, and it helps them to be happier and healthier adults. So the difference is that all the different types of adverse childhood experiences that I'm just about to run through for your listeners, they are types of adversity that are chronic, they're unpredictable, they go on and on, and the child lacks the adult mentor or caregiver who's giving them consistent, unconditional love. They're missing that core adult who is consistently there for them. And that's what we consider an adverse childhood experience. So should I run through what they are? And yes. then we'll talk about awareness? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Let's talk about some of those common stressors. Right. So the research that's gone into adverse childhood experiences, it's now 1500 studies tall. It to wow. reaches my, my top of my desk. <laughs> I put it on the floor. Um, and it started in 1995 with two physicians who looked at 17,000 middle-class adults in their mid-50s and compared their adult their childhood histories to their adult health outcomes. They asked these adults a series of questions about childhood stressors, and some of them were things that we consider to be obvious traumas, such as sexual being touched sexually in childhood by someone who's older, being physically slapped or punched or hit or having things thrown at you um, or ever hit so hard that you were you were, had marks or were injured. And these, of course, sexual and physical trauma and abuse, we consider to be the kinds of trauma that we might see would lead to later adult mental health challenges. Um, but they also looked at a number of things that we might consider to be more common childhood experiences, such as being chronically insulted or put down or humiliated by a parent or an adult who lived in the house with you. Um, also, just feeling that no one in your family thought you were special or not feeling loved or feeling that the family didn't look out for each other. Another category included what we think of as emotional and physical neglect, just um, not having enough clean clothes. People didn't take you to the doctor when you were ill. 
Um, and then some really common things, losing a parent through divorce or separation or abandonment or death, having a parent who was an alcoholic or addicted to any type of um, substance, and also very common living with a family member or a parent who is depressed or mentally ill. So these categories, and there are others, having a family member who went to prison, and I should say this research has extended beyond the original ACE research to look at growing up with poverty, growing up in um, with community violence, being bullied or hazed as a child, and it is even now extending into super high-pressured academic environments that children are exposed to. These all have in common that a child is exposed to a chronic, unpredictable stressor over a long period of time that changes the way in which their genes will express for life. And Yale researchers recently saw that kids who have experienced early maltreatment show changes in their genome on all 23 chromosomes, mm. not only in the genes that will determine the stress response and inflammation for life, but in genes that are directly related to a range of adult physical disorders. So this is pretty mind-blowing. It is. And you say in the book that according to the research, 64% of us grow up in families in which at least one thing went wrong. But then, as you say, some people are more affected than others. So um, maybe you can talk about why some people suffer more than others. Yes, absolutely. And so, um, so, so one of the things about um, the ACE survey, and to loop back to awareness just for a second, mm -hmm. is that it's been shown in studies that when people understand this research, when they ask these questions for themselves, discuss it with their doctors or a healthcare professional, and we'll talk lots more later about other strategies for healing, but that that single act alone, that single aha moment, that single revelation that, okay, this helps explain as one of other factors why someone might feel as if they've just been swimming against a seemingly impossible tide their whole lives, or is one of the 13 individuals I followed for two years while researching and writing the book said, now I understand why I feel as if I've been dancing without hearing any music my whole life. Mm. There's this aha moment that occurs when people hear this research for the first time and they understand if it applies to them, how it has affected their entire well-being all of their lives. So, so why are some people affected more than others? Um, I devoted two chapters to that because it's such an interesting question. And I think the answers are pretty fascinating. First of all, um, one very important factor was whether or not a child had that protective, consistent adult that we spoke about. Okay. So of those 13 individuals I followed, all of them had at least one, even though they had the effects of ACEs, they grew up to have a range of chronic conditions. And it's worth saying that ACE scores are related to higher rates of cancer, heart disease, irritable bowel, migraines, fibromyalgia, and very closely linked to higher rates of autoimmune disease for women. For each ACE score a woman had, her chance of being hospitalized with an autoimmune disease in adulthood increased by 20%. So that's pretty significant. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so in understanding that research, we can all point to some person who had three or four categories of adverse childhood experiences, but they're perfectly fine in adulthood. So, so why are these differences? And again, it's multifactorial. One of the most protective factors and that I found in the 13 individuals I, I followed was that although they had suffered some of these health effects in adulthood, when they began to go on a healing journey, their healing journeys were very successful and profound. And often they would think back or link back to that one person in their childhood who was there for them, a grandparent, a neighbor they baked bread with, the aunt who sat on the side of their bed and said, this is not you, you're wonderful. They had somebody in their lives who broke the spell and broke the message that they themselves were not okay. And so we have to think about that. What happens when kids are faced with these different stressors is pretty interesting. So we all know how the fight or flight system works, right? Like you meet a bear in the woods, your system goes on overdrive, you think I need to run away from this bear or kick this bear, all the blood in your body rushes into your limbs. It rushes away from your stomach so that your stomach, you know, you get the butterflies because the oxygen is really thinking about going to your limbs to protect you. And these hormones through the hypothalamus and the pituitary and the adrenal gland get pumping out stress chemicals and hormones so that you can protect yourself. It's why a mom can pick a car up off of a toddler with that adrenaline because it's so good at protecting us when we need it. But when a child is caught in that fight or flight state or freeze state, they're caught in a dilemma because if their parent is the person who is making them afraid, if the parent is like that bear, only now the bear is circling the house every night and you never know when the bear is going to do something to scare you because the bear has been drinking, because the bear is going to take off his belt and, and, and hit you because the bear is a mom who hyper, is hypercritical because of her own intergenerational trauma and untreated depression or anxiety disorder. That child's brain is caught in fight or flight all the time. But guess what? They cannot run to their parent, which is their biological urge, because mom or dad at that moment is not safe. They also can't run away because they can't survive out there on their own. So a child gets caught in this freeze state. They keep producing these extraordinarily harmful inflammatory chemicals. And over time, that resets their genetic expression so as we said, they'll respond to stress the rest of their lives. Sure. So yeah. some kids are more immune because their gen- genes are slightly different in what we call gene alleles. So everyone has you know, um, different expressions of different genes based on their gene environment interaction, what we call epigenetic changes. But we also have different strains of different genes to begin with. And there's one in particular, I'll just use as an example to speak to many of these different gene differences called 5-HTTP. And we know that kids who have what we call the ORCID version of 5-HTTP, that means that they're very, very sensitive to their environment in good ways and bad ways. Mm -hmm. They're often really creative. These are often kids who, when they grow up and they practice meditation, they get a lot of change. So they're positive things that they take from the environment, but they also take in the negative in a very heavy way. And and we liken them to 
or ORCIDs because they have the short, short gene allele of 5-HTTP. There are kids who have the short, long version and they just are kind of in that middle range. And then we have kids with the long, long version. And the long, long version we think of as dandelion version of 5-HTTP. And the dandelion version, these are the kids who, you know, it's, it's the dandelion that grows in the crack between the sidewalks. Um, it's the proverbial water off the duck's back. And they are less statistically likely to be affected by ACEs in ways that translate into physical disease. So, so genetics play a role. Protective mentors are a consistent loving adult to help ameliorate the effects of unpredictable stress play a tremendous role. And then I devoted an entire chapter to the biggest factor of all. And you know what I'm going to say, right? Yeah, yeah I think so. Women, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So women experience more ACEs to begin with. And women are more likely to, twice as likely as men, to experience women who have ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, are twice as likely compared to men to grow up to have autoimmune disease and depression. Mm. So we have more ACEs. Um, I even argue in the book, looking at some very new science on societal stress in women, that girls grow up with more societal stress in general. You know, girls really can't be right in our society. They're too fat, too thin, too mm. smart, too you know, they're not this enough, they're not that enough. And we've created a, a media world in which uh, we all grew up with impossible ideals of being women, so that's not new. But we didn't grow up with 24-7 impossible ideals on Facebook, all social media, Instagram, billboards, TV, commercials, magazines. It has um, grown exponentially. So I just want to throw out just a, a little, I'm really interested in this research, and I'm, I'm digging into it a little bit more now about the relationship between societal sexism and stress and the developing female immune system. And here's why I'm so interested in that. It turns out that as girls are developing and come into puberty, our bodies respond very differently to the stressors are in our environment, past, present, and, and future than do boys. Boys tend to be impacted um, in different ways, both in the architecture of the brain and in the function of the immune system. So let's talk about girls first. What happens with girls is that we all know our bodies are different than men's, and really biologically, there's a big reason for that. We have to carry we have to carry a fetus, we have to carry children and bring it to term. And yet, you know, what makes it possible for us to, you know, run almost as fast as a man, do everything a man does, lift heavy things, um, go through our world as if there are no differences, and yet also carry a child? It's pretty phenomenal when you think about it. Mm -hmm. And that really has to do with estrogen. Estrogen allows us to do that, and it allows us to function on a smaller heart, a smaller lung, smaller organs, but keep up with men in every conceivable way. Well, estrogen is a double-edged sword because as wonderful as it is that estrogen allows us to have more oomph, you know, do more on less, so to speak, it also means that we're producing more antibodies in our body. That's why when we get vaccines, women have a more res robust response to vaccines than men do. And it means that if we are carrying a child and we have an infection or a virus, um, we'll make a very robust response to that in order to protect the fetus. So that's all good. 
But estrogen, as I said, also produces more antibodies. And when antibodies become rogue, they become autoantibodies. And autoantibodies are what we think of as those rogue players in autoimmune disease that attack the body and tissue in friendly fire and cause every you know, over 110 now known autoimmune diseases from rheumatoid arthritis to lupus to um, multiple sclerosis to Graves disease, thyroiditis. Um, I'm sure your listeners know this list pretty well. Mm -hmm. So why, why does that happen? And, and why does stress make this, um, make estrogen create more autoantibodies in women? Well, women also have one other really core difference in the way we express our, our um, stress hormones. And that is that when we're stressed, we all produce something called GCs or glucocorticoids. And these GCs, um, they help to make sure that our antibodies and autoantibodies are behaving properly. They're kind of like, think of them like um, the, the, um, the guards at the castle gate. Okay. When women are chronically stressed over a period of time, our levels of glucocorticoids go down, but our levels of estrogen go up. So I'm pretty sure you can see where I'm going. Mm -hmm. When we have higher levels of estrogen as an immune response, but we have lower levels of GCs, it's kind of like the guys who are supposed to guard the castle gates, open the castle gates, and all the rogue fighters are let in. And so this is one of the pervasive theories. Girls grow up with more stress, Girls experience more ACEs because of their vulnerability, and our immune systems react to chronic stress through our development in ways that affect the immune system in more damaging long-term um, consequences. Mm, so if we're women, we really need to be aware of of this. I want to get to some of the good news, which yes! is that, yeah, that you have some strategies for healing. But I do want to talk about this a little bit. Um, in your book, you say happy families may succeed not because of what they do right, but because of everything they don't do wrong. So what can parents do with this information? Well, um, you know, you're asking all these great questions that occurred that were so important to me that, again, I devoted a whole chapter to answering this, um, a whole chapter on parenting. Um, and I guess, you know, it's really important to say the most important thing is to manage your own stuff. Mm -hmm. So the most important thing that a parent can do, and, and I say this with great love for all parents, I have two teenagers, and um, and these traumas are intergenerational. Many studies have found that people who grow up with ACEs had parents who grew up with ACEs. Mm, We're even beginning to see that some of this stress information is what we call soft wired in the genes, in the egg of the developing child before the fetus, that some of this information in animal studies, we can see that trauma passes through and is soft wired in that way that I spoke about earlier, where certain genes are set on high for a higher stress inflammation response, we can even see that um, from early in conception. So it's kind of wild new research. It's really pretty, um, pretty groundbreaking. And these studies are being well replicated, which I think it's important to say. So we are all coming from our own stories. Um, and so the idea of parental regulation and, and, and working with one's own behavior is the very most important thing we can do. And let me just say something about that. When I talked earlier about parents getting caught uh, 
sorry, their children getting caught in a state of fight, flight, or freeze because I can't run to mommy if she's drunk and mean um, or telling me I'm fat or telling me, of course, I failed that test or whatever those chronic humiliating moments might be. But I can't run away because I'm, you know, 10 or 11 and I certainly can't survive out there in the world. And I love my mommy. So can't go toward, can't run away, caught in that free state, huge quantities of stress Mm -hmm. hormones start changing that epigenetic way in which our genes will express for life. Um, that, That moment can be changed dramatically when you have a parent who's simply mindfully aware of their own stuff because what happens is that they become a parent who knows how to see their behavior, they become mindful of their behavior, and they have mindsight into what's happening in their body when they enter that state where they're becoming someone who frightens their child. And they become someone who's able to do something that is so crucial and yet so easily overlooked, and that is make a repair, apologize, stop in the moment, acknowledge what's happening. This is my own stuff. I reacted really strongly there. I must have really scared you. I'm really sorry. Mm-hmm. That does not mean being a parent who lets kids walk all over you right. or do whatever they want. It is very easy to set boundaries at the same time that you're managing your own stuff. However, I will say that in the time, in the month that the book has been out, the biggest response I've had from parents is their fear that they're not going to be able to find a way to manage their own stuff so that they're not overreacting or underreacting because parents with trauma tend to overreact. Oh my God, you know, da, da, lose it on their kids or freak out with anxiety over something or underreact. That's okay. Don't cry. You're fine. And that sweet spot in the middle that comes from acknowledging our own stuff, grounding ourselves in the present, acknowledging that this is about us, not about them, and making a repair can also be combined with saying, and in addition to being sorry, it is also true that the rules are you cannot stay out past 11, and these are the consequences for that. And so I put a lot of scripts in the book because I know from parenting, and I know from having written a parenting book before my three books on the immune system, that one of the things that happens when we're parenting and it's very stressful and we're caught in our own stuff is that you know our heart is beating a million miles a minute and we know from research that we don't think very well when we're in fight or flight Mm -hmm. we're in our own state of fight or flight all our best thoughts and strategies go out of our minds so i was very careful to put scripts in the book because i think scripts are very useful we can most of us remember like one or two sentences come out of that blinded state in which we're over or underreacting to something, come back into a center where we are able to just grasp one sentence and kind of, you know, say it. Even if the feelings follow, saying the sentence first can be very, very helpful. We also know from research that you can name it to tame it so that when we name what is happening, we actually can see the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain, instead of continuing to light up when we name things for our kids, this is scary, this is stressful, and we help them to name it too. Mom, that scared me, you scared me. The amygdala, the fear center, which is then gonna pump 
all these messages through the brain to go into fight or flight, it calms down. So these are just some very simple things I offer many, many more in the book. Mm, That's so helpful, Donna. I agree. I think if we had known this stuff, you know, those of us who had children when we were young, oh my gosh, things would have been so different. So we just clean up our own acts. Um, I think meditation and yoga, I mean, if I had done that when I was a young mother, I would have been so much more calm and able to do it. And then name it to tame it. Oh my gosh, that's, that's brilliant, really. So um, one more thing before we get into the, uh, the things that we can do, the strategies for healing, I just want to ask you about pregnancy. What if someone is going through a trauma when they're pregnant? I, I have actually had this conversation with Janet, our acupuncture, our mutual yes. acupuncturist. And um, what, what happens to the fetus if, if a woman is pregnant and she is going through a trauma, say a death? Say, I think you used that example of the 9-11 uh, mothers Yes, yes, yes. We know that. um, Well, we know that nutritional changes in pregnancy create changes in DNA. We know that from studies of the potato famine, kids who were born during years of famine grew up to have much higher rates of disease. Um, And we also know that certain um, infections at certain points in pregnancy can um, are related, linked heavily in the science to greater rates of um, of um, mental health issues or brain changes such as in autism or schizophrenia. So I just want to say a shout out to all parents. Um, You know, whatever I do in my life uh, as a journalist or as a friend or wife, I'm always a mother first. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is just how I'm primed. And I think most of us would agree. I'm just always a mother first. I'm always going to be thinking about that on a more deep level than anything else in my life. And so a shout out to all my fellow moms. Yay, Yay, moms, you rock. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. And, and, and moms with chronic conditions, this is a, this is a huge shout out to you. I've lived it. I know what it's like. It's hard. There are days every day where you lack the physical or mental stamina to keep up with what working motherhood with chronic illness throws your way. So let's just get that out on the table. It's hard. It's impossible in some moments, but always coming back to that place where you can make a repair is a really critical thing. And so this becomes more scary, of course, when we think about, well, you know, what if I'm pregnant and I'm under a lot of stress and these changes are beginning to happen in my, in, in the child I'm carrying. And what do we want more than anything? We want to give that child the greatest start mm-hmm. possible. You know, we're eating all the right foods. We don't have a glass of wine. We wash our hands six times. You know, we won't even eat brie cheese because somebody told us brie cheese, is, you know, could have something in it. I don't know if that was true, Connie, when you were pregnant, but that was my day. Well, it changes constantly. It so. does. It does. <laughs> yeah. It does. And so, so, you know, here all of a sudden we have more information about more things that could cause more problems. So it's interesting, you know, I would say two things about that. Yes, the research does show that these chronic stressors in pregnancy can begin to make these changes in, um, in a child's um, epigenetics, because remember genes and environment are starting to interact from really very early on. Um, however, it's also really important to know that wherever you are, we can see in the research that beginning to make a change wherever we are 
makes a difference. So when I talked about that soft wired information that we see in animal studies where moms, in this case, they were rats, um, cause it wouldn't be ethical to do this to human mothers. Yeah. Um, so rats who were put under a lot of stress, um, and then, um, then were pregnant, this information became, as we said, soft wired into their, into their offspring's genetics. But we also saw that when we, when researchers were able to remove rats from that stressful environment, those changes began to disappear. So I guess what I would say is that it is so scary. I, you know, I, I wrote this book, you know, chewing my fingernails because I thought of all the times that I was away from my kids in the hospital. Um, you know, my chronic conditions created a chronic, unpredictable stress for them. There's just no two ways about that. Sure. It happened. And there, there have been some consequences for that in terms of how safe my kids feel in the world around them and how much they worry about me. And, and this is just not at all what I want for them. I do something, um, and I'm getting a tiny bit personal here. I do something I think of as cowgirl mindfulness, which is when I start to go down that path, which for me leads to a lot of self-loathing because I grew up with a fair amount of trauma. Uh, when my father died from a medical error and our family, um, our extended family really imploded. And there was a great deal of emotional trauma for me. I really, my childhood ended at 12. And when I think, okay, I just wanted to raise children who were trauma-free then I had this constellation of paralyzing autoimmune diseases, and they spent many years watching me bedridden with physical therapists, occupational therapists, ambulances in the, in the driveway. Um, this is not what I wanted for them. This is my fault. You know, I've caused them pain. Therefore, my one goal in life was not achieved. Therefore, I'm a terrible person. Therefore, you would be shocked how quickly I can get into a state of absolute self-loathing. But I think we can all relate to that. I'm being honest about it because I, I think we all have these voices inside sure. that tell sure. us that we're unworthy. Yeah. And we all have triggers. And so I think parents who've experienced ACEs have these triggers. They're different but similar for all of us where we begin to feel unworthy. And then as we're parenting, if our child does something that upsets us, we begin to go into sort of this, you know, they're bad, I'm bad, and, and we get lost in this spinoff that doesn't help anybody. We become really unaware. We have no mind sight mm -hmm. into how our physical body is responding, how our mental state is responding to what we're projecting, to what we're saying. And so I am kind of going to wrap all this up after I go off on one of these little tangents. Sorry about that. Mm -hmm. Um so being able to manage your own stuff, to take a mindful breath, come back to that moment, make a repair, and practice what I call cowgirl mindfulness. And that is that some thoughts are too painful for me to simply say, okay, I can accept this. Yes, this too. Donna, you're forgiven. It's okay. You'll be okay. They're just too hard for me to even entertain them because I can't stop from that moment where I have the thought and I go into self-loathing. So cowgirl mindfulness is the minute that I have that thought, 
I just take my little rodeo girl whip and I've never been in a rodeo. And I just, I just mentally whip it. I go, no, 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 we're not going there. And you would be shocked, Connie, how effective that is. Yeah. Yeah. So for the woman who's pregnant, who's listening to this or is about to call somebody she knows who's pregnant and say, listen to this or read this book, I would just tell you that wherever you are, the most important thing to come back to something you said earlier, Connie, is that aha moment of awareness. It is an extraordinary shift for many people. It's as if the earth has shifted on its axis. And this moment of awareness and revelation allows people to look at a range of modalities, techniques, skills, steps, and approaches. And I put them all in the book. Everything that is out there that is science-based, everything the 13 individuals I followed tried and worked, everything I've tried and worked. And there is a smorgasbord of techniques that one can embrace to begin to reverse these epigenetic processes, pregnant, raising children, wherever you are, so that bad epigenetics can become good epigenetics. And we can see in mindfulness studies that we can see long-term changes in those genes that oversee the stress response where that negative change has been reversed. We can see it through psychotherapy. We can see changes in the downshifting of the inflammatory response. In yoga, there are just dozens of these ways that we're seeing through modern science that very old practices are changing that epigenetic expression. Mm, everybody should read this book because there's so much great information. And, you know, we mentioned uh, Janet, our acupuncturist, and she was telling me about this one particular thing. And there's so many great things about acupuncture, but this one particular, uh, I guess, place that they put the needles that can help ameliorate the uh, ch the trauma from a birthing experience, which you actually talk about in the book with Bernie Siegel. His, I thought that was fascinating. But a birthing experience or uh, an experience in the womb that's not um, that's traumatic. So there's so much you can do. You want to just go through a few of the more effective strategies for healing that you list in the book. I know there's so many you can't possibly <laughs> go through. Sure, that, sure, sure. Happy to do that. So, um, so I would say that there, um, there are three categories of healing that I broke things down into. The first are things that you can do on your own. The second are things that you're going to need some help with or teacher and having a teacher is a really great idea. And I'll talk about how to work that out with, you know, economics and, and time. And then, as I said, being the better parent that you can be so that we stop this intergenerational transmission of, of, of chronic unpredictable stress or adverse childhood experiences. So things we can do on our own. We've talked a lot about taking the ACE survey and having that moment of awareness. Studies also show that when you take it into your doctor or your healthcare practitioner and discuss it, that there is an instant health benefit from having that discussion with a healthcare practitioner. Um, people's, people begin to feel better. And so we might, um, you know, want to break that down in terms of why that could be. I think that being accepted and having a physician who accepts you in your totality, changes your idea of how you can heal. Mm -hmm. And it begins a road toward healing from being listened to and accepted in your totality that we cannot fully understand 
Um, but it is a real and profound beginning of the healing process, almost like, um, you know, a train that's finally getting on the right track. So also um, very simple at-home practices include writing to heal. Researchers have found that writing about your childhood trauma for four days for 20 minutes um, helped people's immune systems immensely. Also, it's important to take what um, I put in the book is the resilience survey. The resilience survey shows you the different things that happen to you or they are part of your makeup that helped you to be okay despite what happened. Um, and then there are a lot of different um, things that we can do, such as yoga and meditation, which I think we covered pretty well. Both of those have been shown in the research to radically downshift the inflammatory response and even, um, as I said, with mindfulness meditation, change the DNA. Um, and sometimes, you know, we need a practitioner. We need to go to a yoga class. We need to go somewhere where we're expected to be and work on a skill that helps us to downshift that inflammatory response. And, and so let me just talk about that for a second. When we're caught in that first half of the stress cycle in fight or flight, we are not living as nature intended. We're always caught up with what's called the sympathetic nervous system or what I call the stress now system. And that stress now system is what's activated in fight or flight and pumps out all those hormones that are inflammatory. In modern life, we're not living in the second half of the stress cycle, which is where we're supposed to have fought or flown or unfrozen. And in animals in the wild, we know from Peter Levine's research, animals in the wild will shake or run or quiver or howl. They'll do something to get off of that sympathetic nervous system, first half fight flight response. They go into the second half, the stress response, which is activated by the parasympathetic nervous system. And to make it easy for people, I call that the per now system because it's mm. easy to easy to remember. Oh, thank you for that. I, I always <laughs> try to remember that in my yoga classes that I teach. And um, yeah, thank you. The per. I'll remember right. that now. Very right. good. The, P, the PNS system, per now system. And so in modern society, particularly people who've had adverse childhood experiences and whose stress response and inflammatory response is biologically set on high, everything is stressful. A bill they weren't expecting, um, a car swerves in front of them in the highway, on the highway, they're in a meeting, their boss likes somebody else's ideas better than theirs, they have an argument with their teenager or their spouse or a friend or sister. And every life is an emergency. It feels that way because actually biologically in your body, it is that way. This is not, it's all in your head. This isn't, you aren't good at handling stress. This is your biological set point for what is happening in your environment. And it's not your fault because it was set in place uh, at the hands of events and caregivers um, who should have been there to protect you and possibly weren't there for reasons that are that are very understandable. But nevertheless, these are biological changes. And so when we engage in practices that engage the per-now system, the parasympathetic nervous system, we downshift that inflammatory response. And it's worth saying, Connie, that out there in our pharmacological world, we have now hundreds of different pills we can take to downshift the sympathetic nervous system 
which is the stress now system, but no one has ever developed a pill to turn on the parasympathetic nervous system. We can dampen down the sympathetic stress now system, but we have no medication to up the parasympathetic nervous system. The only tools known to man are as old as man. Mm. Meditation, mindfulness, yoga, uh, stress relief postures, things called trauma release exercises, uh, body body work from every type that people can imagine from Mm -hmm. acupuncture to massage to um, uh, lots of different things that are out there now that I write about in the book to help release trauma from the body. And so it's worth saying that we have these tools from nature to turn on the second half of the stress response and bring ourselves back into a state of homeostasis. So Tai Chi, Qigong, uh, lots of mindfulness practices, loving kindness, or what we call meta practice, where we do practices in which we offer loving kindness first to ourselves, then to those that we don't know well, then to, um, well, to those we love, to those we don't know well, and then even to difficult people. Mm -hmm. Um, Jack Kornfield's work on forgiveness is really powerful. And working with the gut, we now understand that our microbiome in our gut is affected by long-term stress. And that as that microbiome in our gut is affected, it affects the serotonin levels in our brain. So there's now this very powerful feedback loop between the immune system in our gut and the immune system that's functioning in the brain. So that working on our microbiota can very dramatically affect how we react to stress, particularly when that microbiota was offset in a negative way very early in our lives. So those are just um, a bunch of things we can begin on our own. Therapy has been shown to create these epigenetic changes, EMDR therapy, neurofeedback, guided imagery, uh, hypnosis, somatic experiencing. As I said, I tried to put together a treasure trove. Mm, you sure of- did. You sure did. <laughs> it's all in that book. It's it's such a great resource. And I have to say, everything's just coming full circle for me, not to bring it back to me, but I just did a 10-day silent Vipassana. Vipassana. Mm-hmm. It's either uh, meditation. Uh, and, and in Vipassana meditation, the Buddha actually talks about these sankaras that we create, which are what you're talking about. And this meditation that we did for 10 days with no talking, oh, it was crazy. But we were releasing the sankaras. And the idea, which I think this is what you're saying, the idea is when these things are released and like we have to meet them with equanimity and not recreate the trauma as they are being let go from our body, mind, and spirit. So it's pretty fascinating crazy. Well said. You know, there is the the pain that we get from the thing that occurs. And then, you know, there's what the Buddha calls the second arrow, which Mm -hmm. is the pain that we create by the way in which we uh, feel about ourselves in the face of what occurs. And I think none of us are a stranger to that. I think the the psychologist Martha Beck calls it um, clean pain, what happens, and dirty pain, how you feel so shameful and dirty and awful about what happens. So if if you can release some of those things through whatever techniques work for you, and I will say one of the advantages of following 13 people for two years was that 
I really saw that different things work for different people. There's no right or wrong here. It all begins with awareness, but everyone ended up in a place of profound emotional healing and they were in a better place, sometimes almost miraculously on a physical level. That's not to say that someone with rheumatoid arthritis isn't going to have rheumatoid arthritis or someone in a wheelchair is going to stand up and dance, but the levels of pain and symptoms were dramatically relieved in people who had gone through these healing journeys. And, um, you know, as, um, as uh, well, the body keeps the score, it remembers Mm. and, and the trauma of childhood lives on in our bodies, unless we begin to let it out. Truly. And in your final chapter, I love you say that childhood adversity can bring us down, but it can also be our biggest impetus for growth. And it's about reorienting ourselves to our trauma. So it's back to that awareness and how healing that is. I think that um, that my experience in writing this book and in interviewing um, even many, many more people than I ended up writing about and now hearing from thousands of readers has really clarified for me that going through this recognition embarking on a path of healing helps people to go through a kind of post-adversity, post-traumatic growth that evinces a better self in the process. These are some of the most extraordinary people I have ever met. And I think Mm -hmm. that they have been made better by their journey in as much as I would never have wished it upon them or myself or you or any listener. These are people who have such a deep capacity to connect to others, mm-hmm. such a deep wisdom. And it is that hard earned compassion and wisdom and, and, and wise voice within mm-hmm. that is the benefit of this hard earned suffering. And these are people who go out there and they make life, they make life better for everyone on the planet. Oh, well, I love that you just wrapped it up so perfectly. You said in the beginning that you were taking this journey to uh, uncover some things about the human heart. So is that, would you say that was the essence of what you uncovered about the human heart? I uncovered about the human heart that we are, almost all of us, experiencing suffering. The Buddha said that. I did not uncover that, as you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, that, but that in the face of meeting our suffering, we evince a better self, a better heart. And and that I would even go one step further, and this is not in the book, but it's something that I've been thinking about a lot. I would almost say it is to our biological advantage to have known some suffering and to have faced it. I would almost say that it is part of our evolutionary um, imperative to grow in the face of suffering. Because when we experience this growth, no matter what suffering we've known, I think that we become the people who make the planet better, safer, healthier. And I think that comes to us through the Buddhist practices that you're doing. It comes to us through everything we know about psychotherapy. And now I would just say that we need to bring this into mainstream medicine. Yes, 
Bravo, bravo. So well said. I had chills as you were saying that, and I saw a vision of Buddha just dancing and cheering. And <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Donna. For more information about you and the book and all your books and your future books, because I, th- I we've talked about a couple things that are, I'm sure are, are brewing. <laughs> they always are. Oh, yeah, cool. yeah. Where can we find you? Well, a um, couple of places. Um, Donna Jackson, Nakazawa.com will show you all my different books. Um, I've been extremely busy and I have not put up there all the different appearances and radio shows and talks that I've been doing, but I will be doing that soon. The place where I've been keeping up with posting, so you can lo- learn everything about my books and what I do at Donna Jackson, for more immediate stuff, you can go to Donna Jackson Nakazawa author on Facebook. And um, we have quite a quite a amazing uh, kick butt group of women there and men um, who are having a conversation. And we also have a page called Childhood Disrupted on acesconnection.com where we're talking about different healing strategies that are working for people. So I would say Donna Jackson Nakazawa.com, Donna Jackson Nakazawa author, Facebook, and, um, and also Childhood Disrupted forum on ACES Connection. That's the beautiful thing about today. There's so many ways to connect. So Exactly. The book is Childhood Disrupted, How Your Biography Becomes Your Biology and How You Can Heal by Donna Jackson Nakazawa. Thank you so much, Donna, for coming on the podcast. This has been so interesting and fascinating. Well, thanks, Connie, for inviting me. And next time you see Janet, tell her it's a I will. I will. Take care. Take care. You too. to happy a journey of hope healing and waking up is a small but powerful book about healing from one of life's greatest tragedies the loss of a child it's about love and sadness and being human the nine lessons in back to happy are intended to be food for a broken but awakening soul healing from grief and loss is possible finding joy again is possible back to happy in paperback Kindle and audiobook at Amazon.com. For more information, visit backtohappybook.com.